In less than a year, our podcast has gone from an average of 10,000 downloads a month to 50,000 downloads. What made the difference? You leaving us a five-star review. The more positive reviews, the more the algorithm picks us up, and more people are confronted by the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us press forward the crown rights of King Jesus by leaving us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks. Continue our series through the book of Ezra. Our text for today is Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Would you join me now in standing for the reading of God's Word? I'll read our text for us in its entirety. After reading the text, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, at which point I would appreciate very much if you would respond by saying, thanks be to God. One final time, our text for today is Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. The Bible says this. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. Let's go ahead and dive right in. If there were two main points from the text today that I would like to, by the grace of God, elevate for our hearts and minds, they would be found primarily in verse 11 and verse 12 of our text. Verse 11 and verse 12. In verse 11, we see the responsive worship. It's not an arbitrary worship. It's not a random worship. It's not a worship that's defined uh, by the preferences of men but it is a worship that is fitting for the occasion. It's responsive praise. There's a particular event that's taking place within the providence of God, namely the laying of the foundation of this second temple, the first temple that was built uh, by King Solomon, all the materials gathered by his father David, but the building uh, done under the kingship of Solomon, that temple has been destroyed. Israel had been taken captive for 70 years in Babylon, uh, but in God's providence, Babylon was sacked and overcome by the Persian, uh, Persians and the Medes. And uh, one of these kings rises to power, namely uh, Cyrus. Cyrus, under God's providence, uh, decides to send the Jews out of captivity back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city and uh, most particularly to rebuild the temple. So this foundation of this second temple now has been laid and uh, with the laying of the foundation of the house of the Lord, there is fitting, appropriate praise and worship and singing. Uh, the people are singing and worshiping the Lord in response to what God has just now done, which again is the, the laying of the foundation of this rebuilding project, the second temple. The first has been destroyed, but now the temple be being built the second time. So that's verse 11. We see the song. We actually get some of the lyrics. Perhaps it's the, the chorus of this particular song, but we get some of the content, the substance, the lyrics of the song that is fitting for the, the occasion that is Israel is singing in worship and praise as the foundation of the second temple has been laid. And the lyrics are as follows. And they sang responsibly, praising the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang uh, 
uh, giving thanks to the Lord. And this is what they sang. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So I want us to focus on that. The words of the song that they're singing, especially that last phrase, his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So we'll come back to that in a moment. The second point from verse 12 of our text that we'll focus our attention on is that as some are praising, some are singing, some are rejoicing, others at the very same time are weeping. Again, so that it's fresh in your minds, verse 12 of the text says, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house. Right, so it's been approximately 70 years now. And there's a debate to be had within the history uh, of uh, whether or not the temple was immediately destroyed. Some say that it was destroyed approximately maybe uh, 14 years or, or even up to 20 years after Jerusalem was taken captive. Right, So uh, 70 years, certainly, no debate about that, 70 years of captivity for Israel and Babylon. Uh, but when Israel was taken captive by Babylon, uh, the temple didn't necessarily get destroyed at that same time, uh, but rather the temple may have been left intact for another decade and a half or so. So it could have been 70 years since the temple was destroyed, the previous temple built under Solomon, or it could have been uh, perhaps 55 years. The point is this, there are some at this historic moment as the, the foundation of the second temple is being laid who were alive and witnesses. They actually remember the glory of the first temple that was built under Solomon. And these individuals, the text says that they began to weep with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. So some are shouting with joy, right? Shout on pray on, we're gaining ground. This is a win. We're heading in the right direction, right? Laying the foundation of the temple is a vast improvement in comparison, comparison and contrasting. I mean, it's a vast improvement from being captives in Babylon, right? So, so all things considered, we went from captivity and a strange land to now being in our homeland, our heritage, and resourced by a pagan king to rebuild a house for God. This is a massive win, a massive victory. Step in the right direction. Let's sing responsibly. All right, the, the, the correct, appropriate response is joy, rejoicing, worship, and praise. But some of the old guys, not to pick on the old guys here today, but these old guys, well, at least, you know, make it particular to them, uh, but some of the old guys, instead of worshiping God for a great victory, a great step in the right direction, um, they're whining and crying and mourning uh, because uh, back in my day, things were better. All right? Yeah, this is good, you young bucks. It beats captivity, but it's not the America I used to know. Not the Israel I used to know. Not the temple. Uh-huh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not America in the 1600s underneath the Puritans and the Pilgrims and the Covenanters and the 13 colonies, 10 of which actually declared a state allegiance, a formal allegiance to a particular Christian church. Yeah, it's not that good. You're right. Um, but you got to start somewhere. So the second point of the sermon, um, <laughs> if I was to title it anything, would be, you got to LARP before you can fly. Okay, now again, back to the old guys. Some of you guys, I, I'll use this language from time to time, and I, I was thinking about it this week, and I was like, I should probably explain myself, because this is, um, it's not your fault, it's my fault. I'm using super nerdy, dumb language. So it's, it's on me, so I'll take full ownership. Um, but that word LARP, for anybody who's not familiar with it, it's an acronym, capital L, capital A, capital R, capital P, uh, and it stands for Live Action Role Playing which is a somewhat recent phenomenon uh, that d gives you a really good idea of the state of, of uh, the culture and society, uh, which is not positive. Um, it's where grown adult men, and sometimes women, who typically uh, don't have a job and live in their mother's basements, uh, put on costumes uh, and have plastic swords and go into a field and, uh, and pretend to be a part of uh, some kind of you know, heroic whatever. Um, it's, uh, it's shameful and it should be out of love, uh, for their sake, it should be relentlessly mocked. 
Um, so you, uh, that's the correct response, right? Praise responsibly. If you see live action role playing, um, you point, you laugh, and, uh, and that is the correct response. It honors the Lord. It's, it's loving towards them. Hopefully they'll get a job, move out of their mother's basement, and do something uh, productive. That said, you know, the, the LARP, L-A-R-P, has been like many things, right? The matrix, you know, the blue pill and the red pill. You, you've heard me maybe talk about, uh, that's, that's just a popular thing in internet, you know, jargon to say, you know, some people are taking the blue pill and they're just oblivious. That, all that means is you're oblivious, you're, you're choosing to be naive, you're the ostrich with its head stuck in the sand, you know, the, the, everything's burning down. You're the, the news reporter from CNN right, in 2020, it's mostly peaceful riots, and there's a building burning down right behind you, you know what I mean? That's the blue pill. Um, and then the, the red pill would be, uh, as it pertains to the matrix, is just, I'm, I'm awake, I'm awake. And then that became, you know, there's splinters and shoot off into, you know, views of men and women uh, that actually is really accurate. They, they get the problem right, this red pill group saying, okay, the, the awakened principle, we're going to apply that particular to uh, gender and men and women. And they, they actually, I think, rightly diagnose the problem, um, but they have absolutely no solutions. Their solution is uh, basically just give up you know, and do, or just li live for your own selfish pleasure and those kinds of things. And then a lot of Christians, to be fair, on the other side, a lot of Christians, as it pertains again to men and women, um, they have solutions, but won't recognize that there's any problem. They're like, yeah, get married and, and things are great. And uh, most women in society today are uh, wonderful and fear the Lord, which is not true. Uh, the reality is that like, we should, as, as Christians, older men should be training up younger men to give of themselves, their whole lives, be willing to lay down their life for a wife, to win a bride, all these things. And we should um, accurately inform them uh, that the entire legal system of our nation is against men. And that the moment that he marries, and especially the moment that if God would be so gracious, uh, God gives them a child... The moment that he marries and God gives a child, legally, he is the slave of the woman. Um, everything, culturally, legally, economically, is on her side. She can destroy his life in a moment, um, and, and it's all over. Uh, that, that is, you know, so that also is a part of discipleship. But then the other part of discipleship that the red pill guys get wrong is, um, is that you then tell him, but be a man. Uh, uh, you, you don't tell him, and, and so all hope is lost. It's all over. That's not helpful. You say, this is what the Bible says. So find a good woman who has a long history and track record of faithfulness and a Bible-preaching local church. Uh, ask her if she's heard the word patriarchy before. See if she throws up a little bit in her mouth. If so, break up. Right? But, but if she actually is like, yeah, I, I, I love godly male headship, then you put a ring on it as fast as you can before some other guy swoops her up. So that, that's, you know, anyway, so that's red pill, blue pill, all these kind of things. LARPing, back to LARPing. So today we're given a little bit of, some, some pastors uh, give you Hebrew and Greek. I'm giving, <laughs> I'm giving you Twitter. This is uh, a little silly. Um, but the whole point is, so LARPing, it, as it literally uh, plays out, is grown men who live in their mother's basements, you know, with plastic swords and, and costumes in a field, you know, pretending. Um, but it's been that word, I, it's, or acronym, it's been applied in other ways. And I think it is a useful, because it, it provides a useful visual. It gives, everybody can know, oh, I see what you're saying. So when I, you know, say you got to LARP before you can fly, one of the things that's come um, lately is, is a lot of people will criticize Christians like you, like me, like our church, um, who, who are saying Christendom was a good thing and we should seek to reestablish it. And then, and then you, take, you, you take baby steps, right? I, we're, we're, we're the minority. We're, you know, it, it's not like it, you, you can't just change everything overnight. Um, Christians right now don't have that power to do so. Um, Dusty Devers, God bless him. Um, he's doing great things. He's in office. He was duly elected. Uh, he's putting forward bills and he's doing as much as he can righteously. And, and so that's a lot of people. Here's the thing. So there are a lot of, I'm not talking about pagans who hate Christ. I'm talking about Christians who hate Christ. And they exist. That's a massive category, right? At least professing Christians. Otherwise it's a theological oxymoron, but they profess Christ. Some of them are not Christians, and they really do hate Christ. Others actually are Christians, 
but they're incredibly deceived and ignorant. And, and so they don't actually hate Christ, but they're spewing rhetoric against faithful believers that is essentially, if it was logically played out, if that Christian grew up and matured, they would recognize this is a direct contradiction to the Christ who I claim to love. There are some Christians right now who would look at someone like Dusty Devers and say, you're LARPing. Putting forward a bill to abolish no-fault divorce in 2024 in these United States of America, that's LARPing. So that's what I mean with the second point of the text. Okay, but you got to LARP before you can fly. In that sense, LARPing is not being a loser, right? A 35-year-old man who lives in his mother's basement, you know, and, and is dressing in costumes and swinging plastic swords in the woods. No, in this sense, um, you, you doing your homestead in your backyard, God bless you. God bless you. And, uh, and if everything crumbles, you're going to be in trouble in that garden is probably not going to, uh, to save you. But still, God bless you for a homestead in your backyard. You seeking to be financially independent as, as far as it depends on you. Like Paul, the Apostle Paul counsels the slave. He says, but if you can avail yourself to gain your freedom, then do so. Likewise, if economically in, in our current market and economy, if you can be self-employed, if you can be your own boss, avail yourself to do so. And will that change the world, that one action overnight? No, but it's good. And anybody who says that's LARPing, uh, one, I would say, no, it's not. But two, even if you think it is, well, then C point A, you got to LARP before you can fly. Um, you've got to start somewhere is what I'm saying. And sadly, there are many Christians in the evangelical church like these older heads of households, verse 12, and these older priests and Levites that when the younger generation of Israel, the young generation of the church, as it applies to us, New Testament Israel, as they're celebrating, as they seek to be diligent to obey the voice of the Lord, and they've just experienced a, a progress, a step in the right direction in obedience, and they're celebrating and thanking the Lord, praising Him responsively for His providence, His deliverance, the freedom that He has supplied through Cyrus, and the resources, and the foundation of the temple being laid. As they're praising and thanking and worshiping, older Christians are disparaging. That is not, uh, right, you know, like, uh, like your grandma would say, that's not where you want to be when Jesus comes back. An older Christian who should be a father in the faith, an older Christian who should be a mother in the faith, disparaging a younger generation of Christians who are trying to actually practically obey Jesus in all of life. That's a bad look. That is not where you want to be. So does this foundation for the second temple pale in comparison with the glory of the first built under Solomon with all the resources gathered by King David? Uh-huh, yeah, it does. But is it vastly superior to a decimated Jerusalem with no temple and all of Israel? 15 minutes ago being in captivity in Babylon? Yes, of course it's an improvement. And we celebrate progress that the Lord in his mercy provides regardless of how small. And good fathers should know better. Good spiritual fathers, be they pastors or just older Christian men, the Bible says explicitly in Ephesians, fathers, do not exasperate your sons. Don't disparage them. Don't exasperate them in the one sense by, by demanding of them certain requirements that are beyond their capability to where they can only fail. When I say requirements beyond their capability, I'm not speaking to the nature of the child, the son, in regards to his fallenness, but rather in regards to his finitude. If you haven't heard this theological category, it's helpful, especially for parenting, for both fathers and mothers. With your child, at whatever stage of development they're in, you need to be aware that there are two things simultaneously going on. That child is fallen. They're a sinner. 
And so there's going to be, within the members of their being, their flesh, Romans 7, a sin nature bucking up against good and right commandments from the Lord. And that should be disciplined. But there's also going to be, not in regards to their fallenness, but regards to their creatureliness, there's going to be not only fallenness, but finitude. So if the command is, thou shalt read at a seventh grade reading level, and the child's four, he's not obeying. We're not discussing fallenness, we're discussing finitude. And you, O oh parent, are in sin. You're exasperating your child. You're demanding something from them that is not a moral deficiency, but rather it's simply the development of the child at that time. There's also something to be said for train up a child in the way they should go. Now, 95% of my exegesis on that particular text, exegesis would be uh, train up a child in the way they should go, a.k.a. the clear prescribed commandments in the scripture for all children. But I would also maintain that within that particular text, there is, although it's not the headline, there is perhaps an exegetical footnote that each child is unique. With unique giftings and deficiencies. Not only deficiencies, but also giftings. You may have a particular child who is above average. And so with this child who's above average that you begin to notice your wife and you, as mother and father, you begin to notice at a young age, they're three now, they're four now, they're five now, and you recognize they, they have a peculiar giftedness in a particular area. And although for the average three, four, five-year-old, this would be the standard, we recognize that God in his mercy and sovereignty has given to our child a unique gift. We want to steward that well from a young age. And so without exasperating or disparaging, but recognizing God's sovereign unique gifting, we are actually going to require from this child a higher standard in this area because we know that they can do it. And that we will not be bucking up against their finitude because they have less finitude in this particular area because of the mercy and kindness of God. And when they fail in this area, it won't be because we're holding too high of a standard. It'll actually be back to the moral, the moral issue of they're just choosing not to obey. Okay, so fathers, do not exasperate your children. One way to exasperate your sons is to require something that is outside of their capability. That they're going to inevitably fail, not because they're sinning, but because they're finite. That's one way. But another way to exasperate your sons is not just by holding the bar above their head. But another way is that when they reach the bar, even setting a right standard, right goals from the scripture for your child at that stage of development, they succeed. And yet instead of praising them, for their obedience, celebrating with them because of their success, your response is to reserve encouragement and praise because, well, there's been other successes from other people that were better in the past. My kid is four, playing the piano really well. But he ain't Mozart. Yeah, and, and you ain't a good dad. Repent and change your attitude. Nobody's Mozart, except for Mozart. What's wrong with you? The young generation of Christians lay the foundation of the second temple, and you're weeping? And notice, that, again, this, this can preach volumes. There's volumes of application here. Who's weeping? It's not the young men. It's not the, the younger generation. The people who are weeping are the older generation that had been alive and seen the previous and superior. That's fair. It was superior. But the prior and superior glory of the first temple. But, but what, were, what were the conditions of the building of the first temple? The conditions of the building of the first temple is under King Solomon. The wisest and richest man to ever live, where other nations are coming to him. The queen of Sheba is making a pilgrimage to Israel to sit at Solomon's feet and learn from him. What I'm saying is that Israel under Solomon 
And very much so because of David, a man after God's own heart who, who, you know, paved a trail for him, blazed a trail for his son. Because of those conditions and all that stemming ultimately from the sovereignty and mercy of God, Israel had far more resources in the building of the first temple. Israel had far more manpower in the building of the first temple. Far more unity, far more wisdom, far more this, far more that. Of course it was a better temple. But the question is not in regards to the precise results. The question is always in regards to the precise obedience. Is this foundation, this inferior, technically inferior, lesser foundation of this second temple, was it what God asked for? Did they cut corners? Is it inferior because they were disobeying? Is it inferior because they were compromised? Is it inferior because of moral deficiencies? Because of fallenness or because of finitude? And I would argue it's the latter. That it wasn't because of any moral failure on Israel's part that this second foundation for the second temple paled in comparison to the first. It wasn't any moral compromise or failure on their part. And therefore, it should not be disparaged. They should not be criticized, and especially from their fathers. Notice, it's the priests, verse 12, many of the priests and Levites, it's the spiritual fathers, but not only them, and the heads of fathers' households. So in both sovereign spheres, both the church and the household, the family, you have familial fathers and ecclesiastical spiritual fathers looking at the work and saying, back in my day, we, we, you know, back in my day, I, I walked to school, uphill, both ways, in the snow. Like, sure, sure. You know, an A is good, but back in my day, you know, I would make 110 on every test I took. This is, this is not helpful. This is poor fathering. So that's verse 12. Let's go back to verse 11 now. All that was supposed to be an overview of what I was going to tell you, but I have a difficult time telling you what I'm going to tell you without telling you. So the second half of the sermon, the good news is that the second half of the sermon in many ways has been preached, although I do have a couple quotes that I'd like to use. But let's go back now to verse 11. So before you have the disparaging fathers, both familial and the priesthood, coming into play and discouraging their sons, literal sons and spiritual sons from obedience that they've just, uh, that they've just committed to the Lord and laying of the, the, the foundation of the second temple, before that comes into play, uh, you have the initial response, uh, which is filled with joy, celebration, worship, praise, responsibly, meaning it fits the occasion. It's a response to what God has just done. It's appropriate. It makes sense. And, like I said, the particular lyrics of one of the songs that they're singing is, For He, that is God, Yahweh, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And here's the key phrase, once more, toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. In order to extrapolate some of this significance of God being good, particularly toward Israel. I'm going to use a quote from Matthew Henry on this particular verse. He says the following, Whatever our condition is, how many soever our griefs and fears, let it be owned that God is good, and whatever fails that his mercy fails not. Let this be sung with application, as here not only his mercy endures forever, but it endures forever towards Israel. Whatever captives in a strange land or strangers in their own land, however it be, yet God is good to Israel, that is to say, good to us. God is good to us. Brothers and sisters, you are Israel. You are Israel. One temple was built, and because of the faithlessness of Israel according to the flesh, it was destroyed. And God's mercy and faithfulness 
A second temple was built. That's what we're seeing now in the book of Ezra. But again, spoiler alert, but it's the Bible. It's been around for, you know, thousands of years. If you haven't read it, it's kind of on you at this point. But spoiler alert, Israel is faithless again, and the temple gets destroyed again. And then the third temple, if we can give enough billions to Israel, and they can push out Palestine, and we can lay on the Temple Mount, no, there will be no literal third temple. Why? Because you're it. Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us explicitly that you, as New Testament Christians, are not mere children according to the flesh, but according to the covenant, the promise, and that you and I, by God's grace and God's grace alone, not because of anything superior in us, but by God's grace, we are living stones. This third temple, what material will it be built out of? Unlike the second, which was inferior in glory to the first, where some men, although they were wrong to disparage, there was a genuine, authentic sentiment of weeping because they recognized the second temple is not as glorious as the first, but no, it will not be so with the third. The third is the greatest, most superior temple, not made from cedar or stone or gold, but built with living saints as living stones into a temple, a house of the Lord, and there will be no other temple. You're it. God now is pleased to make his dwelling place be within the New Testament saints who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, the most pure and precious resource there is, hearts and minds of the redeemed. That's the third temple. And there has been historically attempts to build a physical third temple. And I encourage you on your own time to look it up. The closest attempt that was ever made, the guy was struck by lightning. And I don't think it's a coincidence. All those who bless Israel will be blessed. That's right. So bless the church. That's Israel. Billions to Israel? No. Billions to Ukraine? No. You want to bless true Israel? Tithe. And pray that maybe we could build a wall at home. Um, that's about it. I mean, obviously there's more. In terms of particular application and being obedient to Christ and all, all of Christ for all of life. Uh, but that's what the scripture means when it speaks of Israel as it pertains to our time and our place in the New Testament under the new covenant. This third temple, unlike the second, the second there's weeping. It pales in glory. The third is better than the second and the first. And that's where we are today. And so when our text is they're singing, the Lord is good to Israel. What they're singing, what they're saying is that even when there are difficult times, whether it be um, in, in smiling providence or whether it be in dark and foreboding providence, when things are great, when things are bad, in blessing and suffering, in everything that God does, he is sovereign. He's not just sovereign over victories. He's sovereign over defeat. And everything that God is sovereign over, which is everything, he's orchestrating and directing and channeling all of it for a particular end. And that end is his eternal glory and the good of all people. No, nope, the good of his people. The good of Israel. Nations will come and go. Empires rise and fall. But the Lord will be good to Israel whether she be in captivity or whether she be under Solomon in all his splendor, the Lord will be good to Israel. If America is faithful, the church will prosper for the Lord is good to Israel. And if America be faithless and a rebel to the things of God, the church will still be blessed and yet another light for the Lord will be good to Israel. And as this pertains at the most micro level, Christian, the Lord will be good to you. To you. When your little girl is sick, the Lord is good to Israel. When you lose your job, the Lord is good to Israel. You are Israel. And the Lord has promised to be good to you. 
everything he orchestrates, which is everything, sin and righteousness, blessing and suffering, all of it is being orchestrated by God for your eternal good. Romans chapter 8 says that God works, and that's not merely salvaging a bad situation that was out of his control. No, he works, that is orchestrating, ordaining, planning. Like what Joseph says to his brothers, you meant throwing me in a pit and selling me into slavery. You meant, that is, you planned it, you intended it from the beginning for evil. But God salvaged it for good. No, same word. God meant it for good. The same kind of word attributed to Joseph's brothers. And not just you turned the situation, but, but you actually planned. You plotted against me with intent. You meant this for evil, but God also behind you as the first cause of all things. He was using your sinful plotting hearts in his sovereignty to plan and orchestrate this for my good. That a great many people might be saved. And as it pertains to Romans chapter 8, it's the same as Genesis, what Joseph says. The Lord works, that is, he meant, he intends, he plans, he orchestrates all things for the good of everyone. No. For the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, a.k.a. Israel. The church. The Christian. You, beloved. The Lord is not just using good things for your good, but even bad things for your good. Because the Lord, like a good father, is not, is not wholly committed to your present happiness, but your eternal happiness. And in order to secure for you the greatest and most uh, ongoing duration, indefinite long, longevity of happiness and joy and peace. Necessarily, in order to accomplish that end, it includes pruning and discipline, a rod and difficulty in moments in this life. Hebrews 12 says, uh, a discipline is never pleasant in the time, but what it produces is worth it. It produces perseverance and character and all these things. The fruit of discipline is why we discipline. We don't discipline because it's fun in the moment. We discipline because it shapes the child in such a way that he becomes a more, a better postured and positioned individual to receive eternal joy and happiness and peace from the Lord forever. That's what we do with our children. And to think that God would somehow do any less is blasphemous. Jesus even says, which of you fathers, though you are evil, would not give good gifts to your son if he asked? And he goes on to talk about fish and bread versus a serpent or a scorpion. How much more so your father in heaven will he not give to you the Holy Spirit? You've heard me say it before, I'll say it again. There is only one particular resource that God, who is infinite and owns the cattle on a thousand hills, everything is his, everything's at his disposal. He has no lack. There's only one particular resource that our infinite God would ever perhaps have a logical reason for being tempted to withhold. And it would have been the resource of the blood of his son. But as the scripture testifies, if God gave us even Christ, his own son, how much more will he not give us freely all things? Which means if God is withholding a particular finite, practical, temporary thing from you, be it finances, be it health, whatever it might be, if God's withholding that, it cannot be because he's stingy. Because a stingy God, if he were tempted to withhold anything, would have withheld the most priceless possession he had, namely the blood of his son. But he didn't. He gave you Jesus. Why would he withhold a job? A job is way easier. So then the logical answer, and more importantly, the biblical answer, but that's really redundant. I repeat myself, logical, biblical. The answer is, 
God is withholding this particular finite thing because it's for your good. For whatever purpose in that season, he's pruning you, he's sharpening you, he's training you to depend more on him, to trust him, to do. It has to be. That's the only possible answer. It must be for your good. Because if it was stinginess, if it was a lack of generosity, if it was a lack of resources, if it was any other reason, then this withholding, temporary withholding, is for your greater eternal good. Then, then the thing that God would have withheld would have been Jesus. And he didn't. The Lord will be good to Israel. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. One more cross-reference on this particular point. It says this, And he, that being God the Father, put all things under his, that's Jesus Christ the Son, his feet, and gave him as head over the church. No. As head over all things to the church. Jesus Christ is head of the church. And we might also say theologically with accuracy, the Bible would back it up, that Jesus Christ is head of the church and he is uniquely head of the church. Meaning that Jesus Christ, his headship of the church, the church is the only entity for which Christ in his headship died and gave himself up for her, to purify her, that she might be pure and spotless and without blemish. Jesus did not die for the state. He didn't die, even this one hurts, but it's true. He didn't die for the household. He died for the church, of which is made up of many households. But in terms of institutions, Christ died for the church. And an individual household may have members of the church, but there may be other members of the same household who are not. And by membership to that particular household, it does not guarantee you the redemption and forgiveness of sins. But membership to the church, which comes by grace through faith in Christ alone, does guarantee you that Christ's sacrifice, his giving up of himself, was in fact for you. So Christ is head of the church. Secondly, he is uniquely head of the church, that in his headship of the church, he died for her. But the last thing that we need to recognize from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, is that Christ is uniquely head of the church, but he is not only head of the church. Ephesians 1.22 says that God has set him up as head of all things. And any other doctrine would be some, at some degree or another, a version of what we would call pietism. Which, as with all isms, is bad. Except for prisms and Christian nationalism. Right, so I'll throw that one in there. I have to throw that one in. But pietism is not good. Piety is. Piety refers to holiness. Uh, piety prefer, uh, it refers to uh, the process, the lifelong process from conversion to physical death of, of pursuing greater and greater sanctification, being conformed into the image of Christ. Piety is uh, the personal pursuit of holiness. It's sanctification. It, it is often defined by the spiritual disciplines of, of prayer and uh, Bible reading and meditation and memorization of Scripture and fasting. Uh, this is piety. And we should all, as Christians, be marked by piety, but not pietism. Pietism... Uh, refers, instead of piety, the pursuit of holiness, it refers to apathy, really, if we were to sum it up into a word. Spiritual apathy. It, it, it makes all the, um, all the objects of piety ultimately private, reserved for only your home and the church. But that, that basically the, the Christian life has no application in any tangible, literal, physical way outside of your home and the church. And that's wrong. All of Christ for all of life. Christ is head of all things. That's what Ephesians 1.22 says. It's not just that he's head of the church. He is uniquely head of the church, as I've already labored. He didn't die for any other institution. He died for the church and died for the church alone. So he's uniquely head of the church, but not only head of the church. He is head of the state. Caesar is not head. Caesar has a Lord above him. That's what the scripture means. Have you ever stopped to wonder, to think, what does it mean when we say Lord of Lords, King of Kings? Who are these other kings that Jesus is king over? Earthly kings. 
Who are these other lords that Jesus is Lord over? Earthly lords. And I'll give you an example just to really bring it home. And if anybody struggles with feminism, it'll help, you know, the rapid detox of just you'll cringe and maybe vomit a little bit out and you'll be better for it. Uh, some of these lords are civil lords, but many of these lords that Jesus is Lord of lords, many of these earthly lords are not just lords in the civil realm, but lords in their home. Because first Peter chapter three, Sarah, a woman of faith, that godly women today should seek to imitate, called her husband Abram her Lord as a sign of respect. Not capital L, not Savior, not divine Lord, but a Lord, sir. In the same way that husbands should strive to use at times affectionate terms and titles for their wives, displaying the husband's obedience to his particular command, which is to love his wife, sweetheart, my bride my love. Likewise, the wife who may be tempted to use an affectionate term, if she seeks to be all the more submitted to scripture, she would seek to use a term not of endearment or affection, but rather respect and honor. Because the particular command as it pertains her in her relation to the husband is to respect the husband. The husband loves the wife, and that's not to say that the wife has no love for him. But the, the wife is particularly called to respect the husband. And that's not to say that the husband in no sense has any respect for his wife. But there is something particular about the two roles. That the role of the wife towards the husband is first and foremost to be characterized by respect, although there is love. And the husband in his relationship to the wife is first and foremost characterized by love, although there is still dignity and respect. And so the husband would use terms that, that are indicative of love and affection. And the wife, Sarah at least, which Peter says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? So you might want to hold on to that one. Peter, underneath the inspiration of God, says that Sarah did right and that she's worth imitating for other godly women. And she calls Abram her Lord. So all that back to Jesus and his headship, he's Lord of Lords, which at least in part... All my exegesis there sums up to this. He's Lord of husbands. That's one of the lords, earthly lords, lowercase l lords, that he's Lord of. He is Lord of husbands, familial lords, and civil lords. He's King of kings. Christ is over as head, that is head meaning authoritative, in authority over everything. The household, the state, markets, medicine, schools, academics, everything. Uniquely head of the church, it's the only thing he died for. But he is exhaustively, conclusively head of all, all things. And so whether we are in times of captivity or times of victory, in either sense, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who is head of all things, will be good to Israel. Now, with that understanding of Scripture in place, now go back, let's read Ephesians 1.22 one final time. And he, that is God, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Not just head of the church, but head of all things to the church, meaning for the benefit and good of the church. Jesus is head in authority, sovereignly reigning as king right now, not only in the 17th dimension, but over earthly kings and earthly lords. And he is doing so in such a way that whether it be through providence that frowns or providence that smiles, it will do good to the church, that is Israel. The Lord is good to Israel. And then you got a LARP before you can fly. If you're a spiritual father, don't disparage your sons. If you're an earthly father, as many of you are, still, likewise, don't disparage your sons. One way to disparage them is by not considering their frame. The Lord as a heavenly father that we should seek to imitate, the scripture says he considers our frame that we are dust. He knows what we're capable of and then those things which are far outside of our ability. And he does not exasperate his sons. So do not, fathers, exasperate your sons by not humbly and lovingly considering their finitude 
and putting everything into the fallenness category. Well, it's just because he's sinful. It's just because he won't obey me. And not recognizing the creaturely, finite category. But the other way to disparage your sons is when they, you've set, you actually have set fair and right and holy standards. They achieve the standards and you, you don't throw them a party. You don't praise. You don't encourage. When your son achieves something that was difficult, and you know it was difficult for him, it was within his ability. The thing that was hindering the whole time was not his finitude, but it was, in fact, his sin. But still, nonetheless, by God's grace, he's grown to the point where he's finally achieved something that he has not yet prior been able to achieve. The correct response is not to weep and say, the former temple was better than the second. You know, sons of former generations, they, they would have had this, you know, five years ago. Any step in the right direction is a step in the right direction. Whether it be applied to the household and families and parenting, or whether it be applied to our nation. Look, here's the deal. At least I'll speak to the nation for a moment. I can't speak to each individual household. You're all in different places and different challenges. And, and some of you are further along. Some of you are not. But as it pertains to our nation, these United States, yeah, we, we have fallen off the wagon big time. So even if everything was perfect and from here on out, it would still take decades to get back to former glory. And for those decades, as we're seeking to restore what we lost by our own sin and rebellion, those decades should not be marked with weeping. Those decades should be marked with rejoicing. Even though it would take decades to get back to the former glory, meaning in all that time as we're walking this direction, trying to rebuild the ruins, trying to restore what has been lost because of sin, until we get there for a very long time, everything around us would still, by comparison, be inferior to that which came before. But that's not where our focus should lie. It shouldn't lie on, on where we're at and how it pales to that which came before. It should lie on where we're going by the grace of God and that the best is yet to come. I believe, I truly believe, first and foremost, I believe it's true of Scripture. That is true in the Bible. But secondly, I believe it's also true of human nature. Simply winning strategies. What actually works. I think this is what works when it comes to a vision. Vision that people will get behind and find compelling has at least two primary aspects. One, it has a positive vision of the past. Two, it has a positive vision for the future. You might call it this, to, to replace that positive vision part, to get a little bit more specific, what does that mean? The positive vision of the past, you might call that honor. It honors its fathers and it has hope for its sons. You want a winning Christianity? You want a winning, compelling vision? Honor for the past, your fathers. Hope for the future, your sons. Theology that says your fathers were all racist. That dog won't hunt. And theology that says, and your sons are hopeless. Because everything will get worse and worse and worse. And honestly, Jesus will probably be back next Thursday. And then the church keeps losing. And you say, look, it's proof. It's a confirmation that our doctrine is true. No, no, no. You just have a self-fulfilling prophecy. You rigged the deck. This isn't God. This is you. Things are getting worse. Uh-huh, because you suck. That's why. Things are getting worse because you've abdicated your responsibility. You've withdrawn. You've come to a point of an impotent powerless, puny faith that only has application for the sweetness of your private marriage and your sweetness of your private little heart in your 15-minute quiet time and the sweetness of an hour and a half on the Lord's Day in your private little church. You've sought to castrate King Jesus. And then you say, well, everything's getting worse. And, and, and that's what the Bible teaches. No, everything's getting worse because you're a loser with loser theology that says that the guys who experienced victory in the past 
Well, they only really experienced victory because they were corrupt and they were doing things that they really had no business doing. Really, they should have been more submitted to the civil magistrate. Right? The war for independence, I mean, yeah, I guess it was a victory, but only because they were breaking the rules. Because if they were more faithful Christians, what they would have done is rolled over. Charlemagne, King Alfred, Constantine, George Washington, who was an evangelical Christian. And we can debate whether or not he took the Lord's Supper at a later time. There were reasons for that. That is our past. Our past is glorious. How do you make an entire generation, how do you make an entire nation, especially when it's America, and it was, maybe still is, I don't know, but was at least a superpower around the globe? How do you beat a superpower? You can't outdo them in terms of literal military might. How do, how do you do it? Well, you have to get them to roll over. And how do you get them to roll over? You teach them to hate their heritage and to be ashamed instead of proud. You teach them that all their fathers were bigots. And you teach them that all their sons are lost. And then you don't have to go to war because the psychological psyop war has already been accomplished. There is no enemy. In fact, in that case, you don't want to destroy America. You just come inside. Once they have no resolve left, to even have a border. You just come inside, you don't want to destroy it because you actually want to take it. You take all the resources and they'll just give it to you. You don't have to fight them. They just give it to you. Because they've given up. And why do they give up? Because, because there's no will to fight for a country or a heritage or a history that's ultimately the bad guys. If you could convince an entire group, an entire generation that they're the bad guys, they lose the will to fight. And that's not to say that our history is perfect and that there is no sin. But if you want to talk about sinful past, I would encourage you to look at the history of every single nation in the world, ours being the least. The least. But what about slaves? There's still slavery going on in other nations, but not ours. Now, it's all been a lie. It's all been a psyop to get you to hate your fathers instead of honor and to be hopeless for your sons instead of hope. And what the Bible teaches is the opposite. The fifth commandment demands that we honor our fathers. It demands it. And if your particular fathers were not particularly honorable, then look for the things with your fathers that can be honored. And remember that if you're a Christian, in the ultimate and spiritual sense, your lineage, your heritage, goes back to the greatest fathers who have ever lived. Maybe your familial father, maybe in your bloodline, you can't find quite the honor that you wanted. Well, in that case, you can say, yeah, but Calvin is my father, and Luther is my father, Athanasius is my father, Augustine is my father, Paul is my father, and Jesus, although my older brother in Isaiah it speaks of him, wonderful counselor, eternal father. Because through him are all those who are spiritually born. My lineage, my fatherhood is glorious. And my sons will not be the lesser sons of former sires, but they will take the ball and go even farther than our fathers have gone. They will stand on the shoulders of those giants who came before them and usher in, if God would be so kind, a glorious Christendom that makes the former pale in comparison, all for the honor and the blessing of King Jesus. You preach that and the pietists won't like it but they will lose. Because you know what? People respond to that. And you can sit and poke it with videos, calling it prosperity gospel and your exigent. You lost. You won't win. And you can take out one guy with ad hominem attacks and get dirt on him and find out this and disparage him because of his past and make character assassination, but you can't beat the substance. You won't beat the argument. You, it's in the scripture. It's, it's hardwired into human essence. We, we respond. We can't help but respond to an honorable lineage and a hopeful future. That message will go forward. 
whether it's called Christian nationalism, whether it's called theonomy, whether it's called the magisterial uh, um, tradition, or what, it doesn't matter. That, that essence, if you boiled it down to just the bare minimum, honor for the past fathers, hope for the future sons. That is the message of Scripture. It's the story of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New. And it compels and rallies the hearts of men. Men hear that message and they come. And if you get men, you know who else you get? Their wives and children. And the pietists will continue to have churches that are 70% moms and their kids and the men are at home watching football. But those who believe in a potent and powerful Christianity, they will have the men, which means they'll have the men and the women and the children. Those churches will continue by the grace of God to grow and the churches of 150 years of dispensationalism will shrink. And to which I respond with a resounding praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Bless it to your people. Bring glory to Jesus in his name. Amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord now through song as we do. I